Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Happy New Year. Very happy New Year. Very happy New Year. And we are entering this amazing year of elections. So we've just had the election in Congo. And coming up, we've got Taiwan and Bangladesh in January. We've got Pakistan and Indonesia in February. We've got Russia in March, India in May, Mexico in June, Europe in June. South Africa sometime between May and August. The UK, anyone's guess. Maybe you can give us your views on that. And the US at the end of the year. So it's going to be an astonishing year for people interested in politics and democracies as some of the biggest countries in the world go to the election. Yeah. Well, should we start with um, UK politics? And then we should maybe in the second half look at the two that you mentioned there, the Congo, which has happened with a very unexpected, completely unpredictable, massive landslide for the governing party, <laughs> not at all ballot rigged or corrupt or any of that stuff. And then we'll look at, um, at Taiwan as well. And also very interesting developments in the Middle East with the court ruling in Israel, putting domestic politics right back into Benjamin Netanyahu's inbox uh, with his judicial reforms hitting a bit of a, a bit of an obstacle. So I think we should start, though, Rory, with with the fact that we've now had David Cameron's resignation on us, Theresa May's mm-hmm. resignation on us, Boris Johnson's resignation mm-hmm. on us, and Liz Truss's, and you've been in none of them. I've been in none of them. You didn't make Liz Truss. I know, and extraordinary that she didn't didn't make me a dame or whatever it is I'm I'm supposed to be. Um, so I think one of the amongst many many very deserving people. It's a lovely MBE that went to a man who was working on a station who I think saved 27 people's lives uh, by talking to them. Then there have been traditional honors for, you know, many great sports people, writers and so forth. But I guess the big controversy is as usual around the giving of honors to political cronies and donors. Yeah, I'm afraid it is. And and also, I, I, you see, I think what you did there by saying there was a nice little MBE for such and such, and I could say, wonderful that Kevin Sinfield, the rugby league player, now the England Rugby Union coach, got a CBE for his support for motor neurone disease and particularly his friend Rob Burrow. We can all pick the ones out that we say they were thoroughly deserved, but I think the whole thing is now completely discredited by the fact that we've had this wave of resignation on us. And then, uh, uh, you know, it's not very often I will say that the, the number 10 spokesman in their defense of Rishi Sunak allowing Liz Trust to have what worked out as one honor per four days as prime minister um, said that all prime ministers have done this. Well, that is simply not true. 
Tony Blair did not have a resignation on his list. Gordon Brown did not have a resignation on his list. I think Attlee did. I think Harold Wilson did. And Harold Wilson's was very, very controversial, became known as the Lavender List, because these were people that were defined as people that today you might say there was a bit of cronyism attached to it, but nothing like this. Well, I know. I think the Wilson thing is, is that the Wilson lists were pretty, pretty staggering. And there was genuine big corrupt businessmen there. I mean, that was so shocking. And Lloyd George, even worse, right? I mean, well, I don't, I, I, I can't, I can't remember the details of Wilson's other than that there were, put it this way, he was a prime minister who served a fair few years as prime minister. Therefore, if we are going to have this ridiculous system, I would argue that he's entitled to it. I think the whole thing should be got rid of, as you know. But the point about Liz Truss is she was a prime minister for fewer than 50 days. She's put three people into the House of Lords, all of whom are out of the 55 Tufton Street ideological factory, including the chief executive of Vote Leave, Matthew Elliott, who is, I would argue, one of the very small number of people who's done as much damage to this country as any other by being part of this very right-wing intellectual set. Daniel Hanan, who's also in the House of Lords already. Uh, Moynihan, who was also had a senior position in Vote Leave. Ruth Porter, who was her deputy chief of staff for the five minutes that she was prime minister ex of the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Rory, you cannot defend this on any level. It is utterly indefensible. And I don't, and I don't think you can compare it to Wilson either. No, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I think the, the Wilson list was genuinely disgusting. I mean, he, he put in a man called Lord Kagan, uh, what well, he made this man, Mr. Kagan, a lord who was a famously dubious businessman who was finally convicted of fraud in 1980 after the honor list. And Sir Eric Miller um, took his own life while under investigation for fraud in, in 1977. Again, the knighthood came from Wilson and that list. He also honored uh, James Goldsmith, pretty controversial figure. So, and, and it's even worse if you go back to Lloyd George, where you know the corruption around the peerages and that liberal administration at the beginning of the 20th century was horrible. So I think it's been a sort of weeping wound in British life, um, where I do violently agree with you, we need to sort it out. Right. So we, we can vaguely remember, I can vaguely remember the controversy over the so-called lavender list. We've had Boris Johnson and now Liz Truss. And these scandals are now so commonplace that I suspect most of our listeners have already forgotten about who Boris Johnson packed into the House of Lords. And likewise, in a few days, in a few weeks' time, people will roll their eyes and go, oh, well, Liz Truss is what it is. I think we're just, this is something we talked about in our review of the year. I think we are accepting a level of cronyism and corruption that is just beyond any defense and is a complete disgrace. Yeah, no, no I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think the honor system is disgusting. I think mm -hmm. what Harold Wilson did was beyond disgusting. I mean, really shocking. And I think it's horrible what Liz Truss and Boris Johnson have done. Um, and one of the reasons, as, as I've said before, I think it's most disgusting, is that it undermines the value of the honours when it's given to people who are genuinely deserving. Yeah. So what you want is people to get knighthoods or their CBs. If, if, if it's going to the station assistant, if it's going to somebody who's done an amazing amount for motor neuron disease, you want to feel that the other people who are getting the honour are equally deserving. And, and the problem is really this thing called political honours, which is giving awards to veteran politicians, giving awards to donors, giving awards to political think tank people. And the solution, I think, there might be two solutions. One might be to limit the number that are given out every year. So some of the honours we have, the Order of Merit, the Companion of Honour, the Knight of the Garter, have a numerical limit on the number of people who at any one time can have the honour. That forces people to focus more, and that avoids one of the problems, which is inflation. So, it, I think, as we've said before, under Queen Elizabeth I, I think she gave out just over a dozen peerages. Maybe there were 20 members of the House of Lords at the end of her time. Whereas under Tony Blair and David Cameron, the number got into the many hundreds, the sort of four or five hundred per prime minister. Under Boris Johnson, the number of knighthoods was beyond imagining far more than under Tony Blair. I think he was giving out many, many multiples, the number of knighthoods Tony Blair was giving out. So there's a huge depreciation of the currency. Yeah, but I, I, I read somewhere that if you go through the list of all Conservative MPs, every single MP who was elected to Parliament pre-97 for the Conservatives 
is now Sir or Dame, with two exceptions. They are Nigel Evans and Andrew Mitchell, which surprised me. Because I think his dad was Sir David, wasn't he? Andrew Mitchell, you know, you and I would normally think, if you weren't on your current rant against the honours, of somebody who was deserving of a knighthood, being the Secretary of State for International Development, basically back again running our development. And oh, don't, Rory, I think the, the point you're making there is that all Secretaries of State for International Development should get, is that what you say? Uh, that should be automatic. Um, um, it's also interesting on tenure, you know, we've talked about this before, that in the Dutch Parliament, there's only one MP who's been in since 1997 at all. And that's Hert Wilders, the right-wing MP who just wow. uh, swept the Dutch election. Whereas in Britain, it's not unusual to have people who are who are in for a very, very long time. I, I sat on the benches um, when I first came in. The father of the house was a extraordinary, sort of very uh, exquisite, sort of old-fashioned MP with a sort of beautiful three-piece suits and a lot of cologne called Sir Peter Tapsell. <laughs> who had been in the House of Commons so so long that he was in the House of Commons when Churchill had entered the chamber. I don't think Churchill was still sitting, but Churchill had somehow walked into the House of Commons chamber while he was sitting as an MP. And he certainly had been a special advisor on the last Churchill government. So that took him right back to the 1950s. If I remember rightly, he used to wear those watches, those fob watches that you took out of your waistcoat pocket. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a very good way of showing the uh, MP speaking too long when you very ostentatiously draw out, <laughs> like, like, what is it, like the white rabbit in, in yeah. Alice in Wonderland. I think the system itself now is indefensible because it's like when, when we talk about the people that we describe as deserving, I mean, everybody's deserving in somebody's eyes. There will be lots of MPs who say, well, we do sort of do a good job and we have sort of, you know, worked for years for our constituents and we have done this, that and the other. If I was on any of those lists, recent lists, if I was on Johnson's list, if I was on Truss's list, I would be utterly ashamed to accept it. I could not accept. How can you accept honours from people who have disgraced the office? And what it's part of, two things. One is the, the normalisation of this level of incompetence where people who in the past, I think, would hardly have been able to show their face in public, Liz Trust now sort of parading around the world as some kind of voice of the right wing, which is, I think she's being manipulated by these people, by the way. You think this is a woman who was fought for in Maine, as you've said before, you know, fairly kind of mainstream conservative politician, who since she became prime minister, by becoming prime minister with the backing of all these 55 Tufton Street people, she's now rewarding them for that support support, putting them into further positions of power and influence. And here's my other point, Ray. We should, we should maybe talk about the poll that was in the Observer about Brexit. Brexit is now virtually universally seen as a terrible thing for this country. The poll in the Observer showed that I think it was something like there was not a single element of the promises that were made for Brexit that has been met, and there's not a single element that is now seen as a positive by the British public. And yet there you have Elliot, the chief executive, going to the House of Lords, Moynihan, the chairman or president, whatever the hell he was, poor tribe mentioned. And we even have the utter mind-blowing vision of Rishi Sunak calling in Dominic Cummings for a couple of chats about how to help him win the next election. Let's get on to Cummings, because I know that's something you want to talk about. It's the second thing. But just, just to finish this question of, of what we might do to make the honours system better. So let's say Keir Starmer came in and he wanted to actually improve things. Yeah. Um, one of them, I think, would be to limit the number so that you don't have this ridiculous inflation. Yeah. Another thing, I think, would be to have a very formal definition of the qualities that you would expect a, a nice or a member of the House of Lords to have and read it out formally so that it would be too embarrassing, in a sense, to put Baroness Moan, which is what David Cameron did, into the House of Lords. If you then had to read out some great statement like the Nolan Principles, which said, you know, this is designed for someone with the most distinguished contribution to public life, blah, blah, blah. You would then, at least by setting parameters around what these things are, you could begin, I think, hopefully to shame people into not doing things that are complete travesties. You could even bolster the House of Lords Appointment Commission give it much more teeth and give it the power to say when Boris Johnson proposed, he proposed a very, very young aide, didn't he, who was in her, she in her early 30s that he put into the House of Lords. She was in her late 20s, I think. But do you not, do you not think that the, the key to reform has to be Britain growing up a bit and finally accepting, hey, do you know what? We don't really have an empire anymore. To perhaps take the empire out of the whole honor system, because that's the other thing it does. It structures things. I mentioned, I mentioned Kevin Sidfield and Rob Burrow, the rugby league player. Do you know that rugby league has never had a knight? 
I didn't know that. Whereas rugby union, rugby union gets knights galore. I think the honor system is one of those things that cements by persuading people that, oh, there's the lollipop man or the lollipop lady gets an MBA. There's this, the school janitor. There's the this, there's the that. And then at the top end of it, it's the people who already have power they get more power, more status. And your point about inflation, Rory, see, I, I hope Keir Starmer does reform it. If he becomes prime minister, he's going to come in with the, the one of the first things he'll have to do, given our ridiculous outmoded parliamentary system, is how do I balance up the fact that Johnson, Truss, etc., have been packing the place with more Tory peers? These are now legislators in our parliament. So he probably has to put more people in. And unless we actually start from scratch, I don't know how this thing ever gets fixed? Well, it's a really, really good, um, really good question. I mean, at the moment, I believe there are 664 life peers eligible to vote, and those are 215 Conservative, 171 Labour, 8 Lib Dem, 149 Crossbench. So there's no majority for any party because the Crossbench holds the balance of power. And there's slightly more Conservative than Labour, which you'd expect when there's a Conservative government. So you'd probably expect him to come in and balance it out, wouldn't you? Which means putting lots more into there, which makes it even bigger. Yeah. But I think it would be good if, if he really thought about, if there was really good criteria on who it is that you bring in and the kind of qualities you're looking for in people you bring in. Because I, I think that's one of the things that makes the whole thing so depressing. There are so many brilliant, talented people, and I'm sure there are easy to find 40 really impressive people who are prepared to vote with the Labour Party who are not from the world of politics, special advising, local councils, but are, you know, really brilliant people. Mm. And it would be lovely to see him do that. Yeah. You brought in Melvin Bragg, didn't you? I always like the fact you brought in Melvin Bragg. Was that you or was that Gordon Brown? Uh, I think that was us. But uh, look, there are, listen, there are lots of really good people in the House of Lords. Um, but again, a bit like we defend the honour system by saying, oh, well, he deserves it, she deserves it, but Michael Fabricant doesn't. Likewise, I think there's something fundamentally wrong about the way the House of Lords has developed. And I get you're a conservative and you respect traditions and institutions and so forth. But I think for a lot of people, these institutions and these systems now, they're not fit for purpose. And yes, the House of Lords has good people. Yes, the House of Lords does lots of really good, important work. And often much more impressive than the House of Commons. I mean, that's, I mean, I found during my 10 years that the quality of debates in the House of Lords consistently day in, day out, week in, week mm. out, much, much higher quality in the House of Commons. Yeah, yeah, that's really difficult for people in the House of Commons to take on. I remember uh, when the debate around House of Lords reform was happening, Chris Bryant hopping up and saying, I was doing down the House of Commons with lots of good people in the House of Commons. Why did I keep praising the House of Lords? But the truth of the matter is that something about the way that party politics works in the House of Commons has really meant that debates and scrutiny of legislation is almost meaningless today yeah. in the Commons. The Commons feels really hollow. There is already a body called HOLAC, House of Lords Appointments Commission. And I do think that people who feel strongly, particularly about this Matthew Elliott, the, the vote leave people, who let's not forget, there's a guy who was running a campaign which was found to have broken the law. So when you were when you were saying, let's have something where you have to read out a citation, that should be included. There's a guy who, if we should put in the show notes, he finally deigned to appear in front of Andrew Tyree's select committee sometime after the referendum. And something like the first eight minutes are taken with him, refusing to apologize for the fact that he'd stood them up and not been there and not turned up and all this sort of things. These are people, these are the sovereign individuals that we've talked about, Rory. And I think they are they're part of Brexit. They're part of the anti-climate agenda. They are these 55 Tufton Street ideologues who have done massive damage and far from being punished for that damage, they're now being rewarded even further with it. Right. Now, you wanted to talk about Cummings and Sunak. Well, what do you think? Of, what, what was your first reaction when you heard that Rishi Sunak, according to Dominic Cummings, and it's not been denied by number 10, but the Rishi Sunak held a couple of meetings and according to Cummings, basically wanted Cummings to come back and, and help him run the, the election campaign. What was your reaction? Well, um, first, obviously, what it's done is caused huge shock and consternation because Cummings is you know, the man behind the Vote Leave campaign, very much the architect of it, probably more than any of the other people we've mentioned. As we've seen from the COVID inquiry, he was also an incredibly divisive force as 
in effect, Boris Johnson's chief of staff, where it seems as though he plotted to get Boris Johnson in, and then from the moment he got in, plotted to try to get rid of him and replace him with someone else. So he's somebody that, for most of the moderate Conservative Party, it's completely horrifying. And not just for the moderate Conservative Party, even for the Boris supporters, it's completely horrifying that someone should be reaching out to Dominic Cummings, because for the left, they see him as this kind of right-wing smasher of institutions. And the right of the party sees him as the great traitor who brought down their hero, Boris. So it was politically a very, very, very dangerous thing to do. Um, On the other hand, I can kind of understand the temptation. I sat down when I was running for leadership with Dominic Cummings because he's a completely fascinating figure. And the one thing you know when you sit down with him is you're going to get a very blunt, very clear-minded and sometimes quite original view of the world. I mean, he's a, he's a really provocative thinker in this particular case. The, there's two narratives about what he said. There's the number 10's narrative, which is that he wanted to raise the 40p tax threshold above 100,000. Uh, he wanted to reverse all the tax rises under Johnson. He wanted to leave the EH, ECHR, the European Court on Human Rights. So that essentially, that the number 10 view is this guy was coming in with a lunatic series of Liz Truss style mad tax cuts. Yeah. Dominic Cummings' view is that he wanted the government to address the scandal of nuclear weapons infrastructure, mm-hmm. natural and engineered pandemics, the scandal of MOD procurement, AI and other tech capabilities and civil service reform. In other words, Cummings has really said he was pitching this very kind of high-minded, very abstruse, obscure reforms to things like nuclear weapons infrastructure. Over to you. No, I noticed that. There was very because he, he he writes these occasional very, very long blogs, and this is where it was first revealed that he was um he'd he'd had these meetings. So that's the first thing you have to bear in mind in this. He is the, as it were, the the author of the construct of this meeting. And he he and he probably likes the fact that here we are, here's you and me on our first podcast of 2024 and we're talking about Dominic Cummings. He probably likes that. Rishi Sunak, I think you're right. We'll probably thought, well, the guy's got a track record. He helped Johnson become prime minister against Corbyn. Might be worth picking his brains. I get that. But I think if you look at at Cummings' track record, his various relationships with key political figures, there is a sort of pattern to this, is that he sort of works his way in he wheedles away, and then he falls out with them, and then he turns against them, and and then does it does it publicly. So it would be a Absolutely. bit like let's say let's say Ed Miliband had thought, or Jeremy Corbyn had thought, it was worth having a cup of tea with you. Yeah, they would want to feel, at the very least, that you'd be discreet about it. Well, I had many cups of tea. I didn't have cups of tea with Jeremy Corbyn, but I've had many cups of tea with every other Labour leader, including, as you keep reminding me, uh, and will no doubt come on to Keir Starmer. And I've often said to you that I, I think Cummings is an interesting character. I agree with you about that. But the reason why I sometimes get a bit pissed off when people sort of say, oh, he, he was to Johnson what I was to Tony Blair, or he is to the Tories what I've been to the Labour Party, is I would never have I would never have written this sentence. Let me just read you this sentence about what Cubbing said about this meeting. The Prime Minister decided against the deal that I proposed. He wanted instead that I work secretly on politics and communication in return for a promise that I could come to number 10 and sort out my priorities after the election. In other words, he's <laughs> saying, I, you're the prime minister. I'm an amazing genius Svengali strategist, uh, although, as I said earlier, a campaign that broke the law, lots of illegal targeting of people in, in the Vote Leave campaign, Johnson, more lies, and also up against Jeremy Corbyn. So I don't think we should put him down as a great campaigning genius. But the fact that he can say with a straight face, but the deal was soon access to him, help me get elected, and then we'll do your priorities after the election. Now, I think that reveals both an arrogance and a disregard for the fundamentals of our constitution as a parliamentary democracy, does it not? Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty peculiar. And it, it's it's a very, very, um, I mean, it's fascinating that Cummings thinks he has that kind of power. Because as you say, what made you effective and the reason Tony Blair worked very well with you and continues to admire and rate you is that you were very profoundly loyal and you were very clear that you were there to try to facilitate and help Tony Blair. You were not going into these meetings saying, I'll help you get elected, and then in return, you're going to give me a carte blanche to pursue my own agenda. Exactly. And and he he also, you know, Cummings also has 
clearly got some self-awareness and, and I suspect I suspect he's quite irritated by this idea and I, 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 I have some sympathy with this there, there have been times post my Downey Street career with with some labor leaders where they thought you know don't want it known too widely that I'm kind of coming in the back door and all that sort of and I get that that can be sort of irritating. And 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 it's presumably irritating because in the in case of you and Cummings in that case you feel this person wants my advice and is using me but is somehow embarrassed to be seen in public with me. Yeah, or that it's delegitimizing it. So I think I think for me, I mean, look, ultimately when I went back to help Gordon, he was perfectly happy about it. Had me helping him with the preparation of debates. Wanted me to go in the House of Lords as as a minister. But I think sometimes it's it's like you feel that you're. Your own side, as it were, is delegitimizing your role, and and I think I wonder whether that's what was coming a little bit through what the statement that Cummings was made. Cummings said that Sunak thought, "quotes my open involvement in government would drive the MPs and media mad and cause him serious political problems." Now that is probably true, given how people reacted even to him meeting the prime minister. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, what do you think? What do you think it says? The other thing that I think is interesting of this. So, a few weeks ago, we were talking about Rishi Sunak making another kind of bold personnel move that we actually, I think, both saw. We could see both sides of it, but, you know, on balance, I think a positive move, which was which, for him, which was bringing back David Cameron. But what does it say that one month he's bringing back David Cameron, who is sort of seen as the, the, the kind of more modernizing figure of conservative recent history, and then the next minute is seeing somebody for whom I suspect who has total contempt for the politics of David Cameron? So what does that say about where Sunak's politics are? I think the fundamental point is that the Conservatives are in a very, very worried state. Very few of my colleagues in Parliament think that they have any chance of winning the next election. I mean, you occasionally come across one or two, but I never quite believe them. The latest polls that have come out are absolutely extraordinary. So there's something called the Best for Britain mega poll of 10,000 people. And this has found that 32% of the public uh, would like Starmer as PM, 22% want Sunak. And it, it suggests that Starmer would take 390 out of the 632 seats in Parliament on the basis of this poll. Mm. Um, there are two quite interesting things in it. I think one thing before Keir Starmer gets overexcited is there's still an astonishing number of undecided, 29% yeah. of voters still saying don't know. The other thing that hasn't been reported much is this poll is catastrophic for the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems are now looking at being down at 7% neck and neck with Reform UK, which is the ex sort of Brexit party. So it's a, a very interesting election. Labour clearly well ahead, but very large number of annoyed undecideds and the Lib Dems in real trouble as well as obviously the Conservatives. Now we'll put the these two polls that we've mentioned, the Best for Britain poll, this mega poll, and also the Observer Opinion poll on Brexit. We'll put them in the newsletter. And oh, the thing about as well about these these mega polls, I, I, we used to do some of these at the People's Vote campaign, and I, I, I never quite know how they work, but they they do them in a way because the because it is a, a, a larger than usual base. They they have as you say ten thousand people. They do these constituency extractions, and they worked out that there are only four constituencies where Rishi Sunak was ahead of Keir Starmer in terms of who they wanted to be prime minister, including his own, Richmond, where I think he came third after don't know at Keir Starmer. So even his own constituency, it would seem he's got, no, I don't think Labour are going to take Richmond, but the fact is that he's he's had these several, for him, fairly big moments that he's tried. We've talked endlessly about, you know, the environmental pitch, the, the King's speech, the the boats, some of the sort of, uh, the, the Rwanda strategy, these things where he's tried to sort of find big moments for breakthrough, bringing back Cameron was another one, I guess. And they don't seem to have shifted opinion. But where you're right and where Labour should really not be complacent is I think the level of don't knowology that is leaning into a kind of uh, can't be bothered with any of it. And that's what Labour, I still think, need to do far more to break through into. I was pleased that in his, I mean, these New York mess messages, I mean, I can remember from my time with Tony, they're a complete pain in the neck to do. Everybody feels they have to do them. But they're, they're quite a useful opportunity to sort of signal your priorities. And I was pleased that in his, Keir Starmer specifically mentioned something we've been talking about, which is the need to restore faith in politics. And I do think there's something big to be done there. Uh, you're in Scotland at the moment. I'm in Scotland at the moment. 
Um, it's interesting. I've been really interested at where I am in the Highlands. Far more open, overt criticism of the SNP going on. Um, I'm up in a part of the world where, you know, frankly, quite a lot of the time, you, people are people just keep quiet about politics. You know what they're like. They just don't talk very much about it. But out and about in the last few days, really been interesting how many people have been much more open about saying, God, we've got to get rid of the SNP. So I think the combination of that, got to get rid of the Tories, got to get rid of the SNP, that is where there is an opening there, I think, for, for Labour in particular, to go to these people, but they've got to get them over from don't know to positively want to vote. You, you and I, of course, because we're in Scotland, we read the Scottish editions, the newspapers, which people will know are often very, very different from the English editions, the newspapers. And there's been an enormous amount on this. I mean, latest poll there, Scotland's six-point lead over the SNP, which should mean Labour taking at the moment on track to take 35 out of the 59 seats in Scotland. Conservatives down on 16%, SNP on 31%, Labour on 37 so I think I, my sense is that Anasawa is appealing to people. People like him. There's a, there's a lot of um, there's there's more sort of affection for Hamza Yusuf around, but there's not a sense that he's been very effective. And you can see people like Murray Black, who was a kind of firebrand young SNP MP when I was in Parliament, now coming out saying the problem is the SNP became too much of a cult for Nicola Sturgeon, and the problems around her and her husband now having a huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just before we go to the break, do you want to pay a quick tribute to your friend Jacques Delors, and then we will come back? I think friend overstates, but somebody I admired. And I thought there was something very interesting about the way his death was covered. Um, and this is a guy who had huge impact upon public life right across Europe. And yet, if you were to read most of the British obituaries and most of, watch most of the British news, you'd have thought his life had revolved around one headlight in the sun and a fractious relationship with Margaret Thatcher. And just to remind listeners, the great headline in the sun was Up Yours Delors. Up Yours Delors. And the, this was when he was pushing very much on the European integrationist agenda. And Margaret Thatcher made that very, very famous speech, no, 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 to some of his more radical plans. But if, you, if, if we talk about figures of history, I think a lot of the, the changes that have been made in Europe, you'd see Jacques Delors at the centre of them. He was, he was there at the Maastricht Treaty. He was, he, it was his committee that produced the paper that led ultimately to the foundation of the, European, of the single currency. He was right at the heart of German reunification. And very interesting for a French politician, there was a feeling he should have gone for the presidency when he stopped being the commission president, but he actually felt France was never properly a social democratic country and that it, therefore he thought he, would, he wasn't going to win. Um, and he went on to do other things instead. But he was a formidable politician. And uh, I just think it's, it's um, we're constantly saying we want big political figures with real vision and resilience and determination. And he was definitely one of those. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Good. Okay, time for a break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. So, Rory, we've um, kicked off a new year with the first episode of Leading, which is now out. And I had a lovely message from Sebastian Coe saying, you know, gold medals galore, peerages, knighthoods, companion of honour. But is there any greater honour than being the first interviewee on Rest is Politics Leading of 2024? I thought he was great, Sebco. So, um, I mean... Well, any anyone of our generation will know him as the most legendary uh, British Olympian runner, who then went on to have a fascinating career in sort of every different bits of life, including sports administration, including politics. He was a member of parliament, but I just thought he came across as lovely, really worth listening to. One one thing I think that's interestingly in common between him and Cristiano Figueres and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who we've also interviewed is that he clearly had this very, very uh, demanding father to whom he is fiercely loyal. It's rather lovely. In all those cases, you know, stories have been written about these slightly distant dads who either pushed them too hard or didn't pay much attention to them. But in every case, our interviewees have paid huge tributes to those pushy fathers. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, there we are. That's our first leading. And next week, we'll be talking to Guy Verhofstadt, which has, I think, been one of my favourites so far. For all sorts of reasons. Very good. Rory, why don't you let our listeners into the secret of what on earth is happening in the Red Sea? Well, um, I think let's just start quickly with what the Red Sea is. So, the Red Sea is the, the narrow strip of water, that sort of sausage that runs down from the Suez Canal down to the Gulf of Aden. In other words, it's if you look at a map, it's the bit that sort of splits Africa from the Middle East. And on the left-hand side, it's got Egypt and Sudan. And on the right-hand side, it's got Yemen, Saudi Arabia, a little bit of Jordan, and Israel. And it's one of the most important shipping lanes in the world because the alternative to going up the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal is going right the way around the tip of Africa, which is a, a much, much longer journey, which is why breaking through the Suez Canal was a huge thing which Britain was very involved in. Prime Minister of the time, Disraeli, got private loans to get the thing opened. And of course, the Suez Canal led to this huge crisis that shattered British foreign policy for 20, 30 years in the 1950s when NASA seized the Suez Canal. And it's come back into the press again now because the Red Sea is also really, really important to global trade. I mean, the statistics are pretty striking. 20% of global container volumes go up the Red Sea, 10% of the seaborne trade, 8 to 10% of seaborne gas and oil passes through the Red Sea and Suez routes. And the Houthi, who are the group that have emerged initially as an insurgent group, but now effectively control most of Yemen and who are linked to Iran, have now said that so long as Israel continues its attack on Gaza, they will be attacking the shipping going up the Red Sea, saying that that shipping is bound for Israel. And the US and the UK have got naval vessels in the Red Sea. The US has already started shooting down uh, Houthi missiles, has taken out boats and killed Houthi assailants. The British Defence Secretary Grant Shapps has now signalled that the UK will join the US in a coalition to protect the shipping lanes. And some of the major shipping companies have already announced that they're going to be sailing around the Horn of Africa rather than coming up the Red Sea. Back to you. Well, one of, one of the things that we discussed with Guy Verhofstadt is this theme that you and I both addressed in different ways about whether individuals really can make make a difference. And you're a Houthi man, I'm a Houthi man. Um, but the they take the, the Houthis take their take their name from one individual, a guy called Hussein Al Houthi. And he was the the founder of this, I guess you'd call it a subsect of the Shia Muslim community in Yemen. Yeah, exactly. So they're Zaydis. And actually, Zaydis were, when I was um, kind of studying this stuff back in the early 90s, were considered quite distinct from Sunni and Shia. But increasingly, partly under Iranian missionary work and Iranian outreach, have begun to reinterpret themselves as being a branch of Shia Islam closer to Iran than to the Gulf states, which are Sunni monarchies. Is that real or is that opportunistic? Well, I, I think it's it's. A, I think the Zaydis remain a strange historical anomaly. It's it is a different tradition of Islam. I mean, you can get into different theologies on whether it would be considered closer to the Shia tradition or the Sunni tradition. But the Iranians have been very, very adept 
at making them feel that their form of Islam is closer to Iran. And essentially, this is a proxy war. To, to mm. go back to Yemen, because we were in a situation in which after the Arab Spring, the Yemeni dictator was effectively toppled. And when I was in uh, visiting Yemen um, in the final days of the British embassy there, I remember having to scurry for cover with the British ambassador because a Houthi column had come down when we were on a, a trip just north of Sana'a. British embassy then evacuated, horrible civil war began, millions of people killed, some of the most extreme famine conditions in the world. Saudi Arabia and UAE then got involved on the anti-Houthi side. Uh, we've talked about Yemen again because they brought in the leader of the Janjaweed militia from Sudan, who first developed his relationships with the Gulf state fighting for them in Yemen. And he's the guy that's absolutely at the center of the civil war in Sudan at the moment. So that's an example of the way in which these wars spill over into neighboring territories. It also matters because it's one of the major reasons why UAE and Saudi broke with the United States, because they mm. felt the US had not been supportive enough when the Houthi had been firing missiles into Saudi Arabia and UAE. And so there's a sort of irony here, which will be adding salt to these wounds, which is the Gulf states will be saying, we were warning you about the Houthi. And when they were firing missiles at us, you didn't really do much to back us. Yeah. Now they're firing missiles at your ally Israel, and suddenly you're saying that you're going to launch some great maritime campaign. Yeah, and if you if you want a, a sort of sense of of their basic outlook on life, their official slogan is "Death to America, Death to Israel," which we it used to be the great um, Iranian slogan. Um, yeah, and in the glory days for Britain was "Death to America, Death to Britain, Death to Israel." But another sign of Britain's declining influence is we've been dropped from the slogan. From the from the from the top league, what what I f find interesting, do, do you think is it? Do you think it's real that the escalation from the Houthi side has been specifically related to Israel Gaza, or do you think that is also something that they've just realised gives them this opportunity to step things up, and they're now just prodding to see how far how far they can go? Because you know they have the Americans have been pretty quick to take some of them out, and you know, we know that once that, that sort of escalation starts, it can very, very quickly accelerate. Yeah. And, and, and the problem is, of course, that um, we had this when um, I was in government and we were trying to deal with the challenge of Somali piracy, mm. which, which has been another big issue, is that quite quickly you get into a conversation around what you do on land. Because if, if you're simply attacking ships in the water, you're dealing with the symptoms, not the deep root causes. And of course, once you get into the deep root causes, you're getting into the whole mess that is Yemen itself. And, and that, that indeed was what happened with Somalia. When we began trying to look at these pirate attacks from Somalia, increasingly, of course, we were drawn back to do more and more mm. development and investment and security programs on the mainland of Somalia. So there's that threat. I think another thing that you're pointing to, which is going to worry people, is that the Houthi are an Iranian proxy, just like Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. And so far, the Israel-Gaza fight has not spilled over into a regional conflict with Iran, because so far it seems as though Iran has been restraining Hezbollah in Lebanon and restraining the Houthi from doing very big attacks. I mean, there have been missiles, there have been these smaller attacks. At the moment, though, it feels like Iran does not want to be drawn into a big regional conflict. But, but it wouldn't take much in the various hotspots that are now attached to this for it to step up. Then it becomes very, 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 very dangerous mm. because then you can imagine Israeli strikes against uh, Iran backed by mm. the United States. And th then, you're in, then, then people who worry that we're at something that feels like the beginning of the First World War, this is like the, the, the fights in the Balkans around Serbia and Bosnia that led to the First World War, this might be the same sort of trigger for a regional conflict. Yeah. So before we go on to Israel-Gaza itself, just, just to give people a sense of perspective on the war in Yemen, which we've said many, many times gets shamefully little discussion in our debate. 377,000 deaths since the start in 2022, and they reckon more than 4 million people now on the move as a result of it. So that is a somewhere to watch, and it's a fairly new development related to Israel-Gaza, and one that I suspect we'll be talking about again in the future. Just on, on Israel-Gaza, you, you probably saw overnight, we're recording this Tuesday morning, um, the Supreme Court judgment against Netanyahu and his judicial reforms, which 
kind of reminds him that th- this is a guy who's, I, I don't say this pejoratively, but in a sense has been using the, the current war to shield himself from some of the massive domestic political trouble he was in. But in a way, that's now right back in his face. Yes. If listeners want reminders of this issue, um, we'll put a link in the recording to an earlier interview that we did with Yuval Noah Harari when he was right in the heart of these demonstrations. So the, the story coming out of Israel, listeners will remember before October, was a massive fight against this right-wing government and particularly the far-right members of the cabinet who were basically trying to muzzle the judiciary. They saw the judges in Israel as being too liberal because they were occasionally challenging them, on, uh, including on issues around settlements. There were demonstrations regularly in the streets of Tel Aviv of over 100,000 people. The military and the reservists had come out on the side of the demonstrators against the Israeli government. The Israeli government passed a law effectively muzzling the Supreme Court. And at the time, it seemed very unlikely that the Supreme Court would overturn that because it would put the Supreme Court into a massive constitutional crisis. So Parliament passed a law undermining the power of the judges, and the judges have now, by a slim majority, seven to six, overturned that. But it may be that in the new context, actually, the judges will be successful, whereas people feared before all the horror that's followed on from October that if the judges tried to do it, that that really would be the end and Parliament would then pass a much more aggressive law and change the constitution. Yeah. The Israeli media at the moment is full of a lot of anger from some of the particularly the right-wing ministers in, in Netanyahu's cabinet who think this is an absolute abuse of the of the constitution. So they, you're right. This, is, this, this has the feeling of a constitutional crisis in the making. There's one other thing I was reading, Rory. You've talked before about the possibility that we're going to get, we can get General David Petraeus onto the onto leading, which I would love to do if we can. Yeah, he says something very interesting. He, he said that Israel has to clear and hold all of Gaza to achieve its stated mission of destroying Hamas and rescuing the hostages. Clear and hold all of Gaza. What do you think that means? Yeah. So this is right back to uh, David Petraeus was the U.S. commander um, in Mosul. And then he was the CENTCOM commander, and then he was the commander in Afghanistan. And he was the leading driver at a senior level of the US counterinsurgency strategy, its coin strategy. And the key of the coin strategy was clear, hold, and build. And the idea is that you put in the troops, you establish security, you hold the area, and then you begin to reconstruct and try to win the population back onto your side. It is an incredibly expensive, labor-intensive project. The US spent over $3 trillion trying to do it in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Rand Corporation was arguing that you needed one soldier for every 20 members of the civilian population. And frankly, they did not succeed. And Mm. of course, the extreme coin specialists say, well, we should have spent more money, had more troops, and maybe then it would have worked. But I, I think in the context of Gaza, General Petraeus is basically pointing to the fact that what Israel is doing is, or trying to do, is not just unbelievably brutal. I mean, it now looks like 21,800 people have been killed, 50,000 plus have been injured, half the housing stock is now in ruins in Gaza, but that there is no day after strategy. There is no Mm. concept of what happens when this is over. The other worry I have about Netanyahu now being back in a domestic political difficulties is that they ramp it up even further. And if you think about when we first started talking about this in, in the immediate aftermath, I think we both agree that there would be a really, really brutal response. I think it's very, very hard to make the case that they are taking every effort to avoid civilian casualty. It's very, very hard to make that case. Uh, just just to feed, feed in from friends of mine in, in Jordan who are in touch all the time, I mean, to put it in context, I have a friend who ran a small charity in Gaza, which could not have been less political. I mean, it's basically a, a charity doing kind of sports entertainment for kids. And in his case, four of his senior staff members one of which I met, have been killed with all their families. I mean, they could not have been less Hamas. And he reckons that every single person he knows in Gaza has now lost very close relatives. But it, it was particularly seeing the photographs of the, these four relatively junior employees of a, a small charity, young, young men with their families, 
all dead that really brought home to me what, what this is actually like, that, that we're just struggling somehow in our coverage to communicate who those 21,000 people are. I mean, I, I guess the easiest way through it is, of course, to explain that so many of them are children, but it's also just getting across the fact that some people may still believe that the vast majority of these people are somehow associated with Hamas or supporting Hamas. It just isn't the case. In fact, Israel has killed and captured very few Hamas leaders in this in this attack. Mm. And, and the other thing you talked there about the, the coverage, 65 journalists have been killed. Now, war correspondents go to dangerous places, but you wonder too whether, and I've told you before about some of the discussions we had during the Kosovo war about being aware that there were targets that were under consideration where we knew there would be journalists and sufficient precaution being taken. Now, is that happening? And I think what happens is if you make the case that, you know, they, they use hospitals, they use schools to protect Hamas fighters, before you know it, everything becomes a legitimate target. And it seems to me that we're already losing a debate about that. And the, the, other, the other thing that we don't see, you very rarely see pictures of the people who are dead. It's almost like, so we, you said 21,500. That's a lot of people. That's Burnley Stadium full. I actually had that thought when we were playing Liverpool on Boxing Day. If every single seat was filled, that is the number of people now who have been killed. Now, every single one of them is a, is a person. What the media normally does in these situations is you see pictures and it brings home the humanity, but we're not seeing that. And I'm not criticizing the journalists because they've got a hellish difficult job to do. And as I say, 65 have been killed doing it. But I think there's, it's almost like this is, this is being portrayed without the human stories being told. And that, again, normalizes it just as another, another zone of violence going on. Yeah, and I, exactly. As you, as you say, it really came home to me when I, was, when I can really connect it to, to individual lives and individual people to, to get mm. any sense of the context of it. Um, right. Well, that uh, we promised at the beginning of the show to start talking about what is really the biggest year of elections Ever. in world history that we're coming into. Um, you know, in a sense, this year, um, the whole world is the rest is politics. It's politics, politics, politics as we go into 24 at a time when the stakes are hugely high. And the year ended just over Christmas just in a couple of days before Christmas, with an election in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is this huge country in the middle of Africa, 100 million people, and probably the most difficult country in the world to hold an election. The election itself cost $1.4 billion. They were trying to run over 70,000 polling stations. And for people who know the Democratic Republic of the Congo, one of the problems is just accessibility. The roads get washed away very quickly by rain. You can see on YouTube, if you're interested, images of trucks trying to move through these roads, which are basically like mud rivers. Um, the election had to be extended, or had to be extended, the government decided to extend it by another two days because the problems of getting into these remote polling stations. And the logistical difficulties are compounded by the fact that in Eastern Congo, there are over 100 different insurgent groups there is a very hot civil war taking place. And it's a country that is also matters to the world. I mean, it's not irrelevant to the world. It matters to the world because it is the place from which so many of the critical minerals, which are powering the energy transition, powering our attempts to address climate change come from. So uh, right at the heart of Tesla cars are 10 pounds of cobalt, of which the DRC is the biggest producer in the world. Coltan, which is another thing they produce, completely vital for telephones, transistors, another part of the Coltan derivatives for jet engines. It's also a huge producer of things like gold. So there's muddled up in this is ethnic conflict between Tutsi and Hutu, which flowed over from the Rwanda conflict. There are Islamist militia groups. There are amazing conflicts to do with different people trying to control illegal mining. And the result, as you said at the beginning of the show, was that President Tshisekedi, who I've met a couple of times, a slightly unlikely politician, has been re-elected. And the man who appeared to have beaten him in the last election got surprisingly few votes. Um, and all the opposition parties are calling fraud. Over to you. He won with 73% of the vote. 
the guy who came second was sort of 16. And the guy who we thought was going to be the big challenger, he ended up with 4%. So do we assume that that is the way this was voted? And do we, if you are going to rig an election, do you really want to give yourself those sort of Putin-esque style figures? It, it's amazing, isn't it? And, and of, of one of the great uh, tricks of these things, I remember talking to people who were trying to rig the Afghan election, um, is that they always get it wrong because they're under so much pressure from their bosses to steal as many votes as possible that they completely overshoot the mark. I remember some of the polling booths coming back from uh, one of the Karzai elections where all the results were always in 50s because that was apparently the the number of things that you had on a stack of papers. So when you stole the votes, you always stole them in 50s. So it was always kind of weirdly every number ended in 50. I think it's, I think it's completely totally inconceivable that Felix Tishkedi can possibly have got 73% of the vote if there was any proper functioning fair electoral system. And, and this is going to be the question as we move forward through this year and we look at places like Bangladesh with their elections coming, Russia with the elections coming there, Venezuela where the elections are coming there, but also probably more disturbingly places closer to home. We're going to run into a lot of troubles on whether these things are fair. Yeah, and also Donald Trump will be looking at this and thinking, oh, they can do it. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And the problems that he faces, I mean, we, we talk a lot about democracies and the evolutions of democracies. But I guess DRC is probably, as we talk through the elections that are coming this year, maybe the most extreme example of what these democracies, some of the democracies are like in practice, mm. which is it's 2,000 miles from end to end. It's the most wonderful country on earth. I mean, you, you may have come across Congolese jazz music, which is the- yeah. And Congolese music in general, which is a kind of incredibly dynamic. Um, huge differences between kind of mountain gorillas in the east on the Rwanda border, stretches almost all the way through to the coast, the Great Congo River. When I was a minister traveling around DRC, I astonished again and again by the variety of differences and how long it just took you to get from one place to the other. But poor DRC is also the place, of course, which had a very big Ebola outbreak in 2019, hit the press for that. But most of all, I think it's a place where six million people have been killed in, in mm. the Congo conflict mm. since um, the 1990s. There are 15,000 UN peacekeepers on the ground and a lot of talk about withdrawing them because they don't seem to have made much difference over the years. The US, again, trying to do its best. I mean, US, almost the only country still doing this as Britain and France and others withdraw. The Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, turned up on the end of November and managed to get a 72-hour ceasefire going in eastern Congo. So credit to the US on trying. But the big story there is that China has spent untold billions buying up all the key mines. Yeah. Because since 2015, China's had a very clear view that if the world is going towards battery technology and electric vehicles, they need to own all the key materials. And they've bought these mines from Freeport, which is a US company. And now the US is scrabbling under Joe Biden to try to work out how to get US mining interest back into Congo because China now controls through Congo so much the world trade. Okay, well, let's stick with China while we look very briefly ahead to the, I guess, the next big election in this election year, and that's Taiwan on January the 13th. Um, so you've got an outgoing president, Tsai Ing-wen. She's step, stepping down, has to step down because there's a, a two-term limit. Her successor as the candidate for the DPP is Lai Ching-tae, favorite leading in the polls. Main stance insofar as it relates to China, pretty robust, absolutely. And, and China, needless to say, relations with China is a very, very big issue for all of the parties, and they are the most critical of China. There are two opposition, main opposition parties, the Kuomintang, Kuomintang KMT Party and the TPP, the Taiwan's People Party. There was a, a talk at one point of them coming together. That hasn't happened, which is probably to the advantage of the, the incumbent. But it's, you know, it's reasonably close. The, the leaders about at the moment is 38 to 31, DPP 38, KMT is on just over 30 and the TPP on sort of 14, 15. The line that is sort of put out there the whole time is that the other main candidate in this election is China. That is the debate. They're amazing campaigns. You, you mentioned 
music in relation to Congo. And Congo, by the way, you know, we, we talk sometimes about the importance or lack of importance of celebrities in our relations. The parties really fight in Congo to get the top musicians out backing them. And it was interesting how many of the really big guys just did not want to get involved. And likewise, if you want to see some really colorful, lively election rallies, just Google Taiwan election campaigns. There's a lot of, they're very, very lively, very, very vibrant. But this is going to be a big, big election. For because the, the others are a bit softer towards China. Yeah, exactly. Just just to come in on that. So the opposition, the main opposition party, the Kuomintang, was the party that ruled effectively a one-party state in Taiwan. Yeah. And they were the party that ruled China under Chiang Kai-shek until he was booted out by the communists in the 1940s and took his government with him to this large offshore island, Taiwan, and continued. Taiwan continued to hold the seat of China at the UN Till 1971. So the Republic of China, this Chiang Kai shek setup, continued to claim to be the government of China. It would be a bit as though, um, let's say, Ashraf Ghani's government in Afghanistan, instead of being completely kicked out by the Taliban, had retreated to a small enclave in the northern mountains and continued for nearly 30 years to claim to be the government of Afghanistan when the Taliban was effectively mm. ruling the whole rest of the country. It, it, it is an amazing success story on one level. Absolutely extraordinary. It is in, absolutely incredible. And the odd thing about Taiwan, which is difficult to communicate, is that it's not. It, it's never declared full independence. Mm. And there is a one-China policy. So the UN went from recognizing the Republic of China, recognizing the Taiwan government as the government of China in 1971, to recognizing the People's Republic of China, the communist um, China in 1971. And in this debate between the Kuomintang, which basically the opposition is saying the best way of preventing a war with China is to go gentle, gentle and go mm. for closer economic and diplomatic ties with China. And they're trying to portray the, the ruling party, the DPP, as being more aggressive and more likely to lead to a confrontation with China. But neither of them are quite going as far as signaling full independence, and neither of them are prepared to accept the situation that China's suggesting, which is the situation of Hong Kong, which is this one country, two systems idea, which is that you'd bring Taiwan back into China, but leave it a degree of autonomy, because of course, the experience of Hong Kong has been pretty awful. One of the reasons yeah. why that idea has been blown up is that since 2019, it's been clear that the People's Republic of China hasn't really honored giving proper autonomy to Hong Kong. And so people who mm. supported that in Taiwan have been undermined. Well, so 80% of, of people say they're concerned about the worsening security situation. And that's exacerbated by the fact that China, as the election nears, have been stepping up the number of kind of incursion of flights into Taiwanese airspace and just sort of probing and testing. So the question then is whether if you're more concerned about the security situation, you lean in towards the DPP who say that requires us to stand firm and be robust, or you lean to a, a slightly softer position. And that's where the, the election is, is being fought. But just to give the, the Beijing perspective, in common with most world leaders, President Xi Jinping did a, a New Year's address, and he was pretty clear. The reunification of the motherland is a historical inevitability. China will surely be reunified. And Tsai Ing-wen, in her news address, said that relations with China have to be decided by the will of the Taiwanese people. Now, the will of the Taiwanese people is going to be expressed on January the 13th, and we should probably come back to it thereafter. Yeah. And the candidate to watch from the opposition is uh, a man called, as you said, Huo Yui. And he was the former police chief of Taiwan, and he's been the mayor of New Taipei. He's seen as a really mostly seen as a effective, pretty non-political administrator. He's been much less outspoken on the China issue than the candidate mm. from his party that was defeated in the last elections. So we'll see what happens. But this, yes, absolutely, for those of us that are worried about regional politics, this election in Taiwan will have a huge influence on how Xi Jinping reacts to Taiwan over the coming months and years. Good. Well, we'll talk about that in the near future. Meanwhile, see you tomorrow for question time. See you tomorrow for question time. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.